now to an intimate view of American life in fraught times. Pulitzer Prize winner David Finkel, known for his in-depth observational reporting, has written a new book that navigates a deeply divided America and observes the fractures that have widened since the 2016 election of Donald Trump. David's previous books include The Good Soldiers and Thank You for Your Service, observing the lives of American soldiers fighting in Iraq and back home again. Now, David has again embedded spending years with a small group of interconnected people in Atlanta, Georgia, including one of those US soldiers from Iraq, and they find themselves, this group, on opposite sides of the growing political divide. The book is called An American Dreamer, Life in a Divided Country. It's a story of distrust, hopes and beliefs, and it's an absolutely fabulous read, I have to say. David, welcome back to Australian Radio. Hi, Fran. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. David, I wonder if I could ask you to set up the story you're telling here by getting you to read the first couple of pages of your book. Would you do that for us? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. In, in, in your introductory remarks, you used the word fraught. And it's a pretty mild word for what's been going on, but it strikes me as exactly right and what I wanted to try to write about. I mean, how do you do that when, when we've all, day after day for years now, we've, we've been hearing and, and living in the same news? Um, I think what I tried to do was try to write a book not about the extremes, not about the people who have been climbing the Capitol walls, not about the politicians, not about Trump necessarily, or Biden or anyone like that, but someone who who readers might recognize as a version of themselves, the story of most of us, if, it, if I can say it that way. Mm-hmm. And, and the introduction here, uh, this is how the book starts. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping uh, if you hear that and if listeners hear that, you'll get a sense of, of what I just tried to explain. Um, But it begins this way. It was November 3rd, 2020, election day, and soon after Brent Cummings woke up, he called out, hey, I'm going to vote. Who in his big house heard him? He wasn't sure. Probably no one, he realized. His wife, Laura, was already gone. His older daughter, Emily, was away in college, and his younger daughter, Meredith, was asleep in her bedroom. A marriage going on 26 years, a 21-year-old daughter, an 18-year-old daughter, five bedrooms, four bathrooms, a front porch with a couple of rocking chairs, a large backyard where his daughters had spent hours bouncing on a trampoline in the warming sunshine of Georgia. This was the life Brent Cummings had built since his days as a soldier in the Iraq War, although another way to describe that life was that the trampoline had eventually become covered in leaves and hauled away. His younger daughter, who'd been born with Down syndrome, had mysteriously stopped speaking. His older daughter was twirling her hair a lot and wringing her hands sometimes and feeling anxious about her future. His wife, normally so upbeat, was spending more and more time fighting off feelings of melancholy. And somewhere in all of this, Brent had become middle-aged. Out of one war and into another. That was how life in the United States was increasingly feeling to Brent. The day before he turned 52, And at the end of dinner, Laura had brought him a slice of birthday cake. She was smiling. I didn't realize till Sunday that there's a difference between white frosting and vanilla frosting, she'd said, and then asked him, which do you like? Vanilla, Brent had said. Well, Laura had said, this is white. He'd taken a bite. Yeah, he said, I like vanilla. He'd slept fitfully, which happened often since he'd come home from Iraq, and when he woke up, he was relieved to have gotten through the night without a bad dream. 
He got into his pickup truck. The polling place wasn't far away. He used his turn signals. He didn't exceed the speed limit. He parked between the lines. He opened the entrance door for someone else and let that person go through first. He believed in courtesies and in rules. And he believed that anyone who held doors didn't lie about cake frosting, didn't cheat, worked hard, and treated people with respect would have a shot at a life of opportunity and meaning. Here to vote, a poll worker asked him. Yes, sir, he said. Okay, so that's the opening of this book. It is. Out of one war and into another, that's how life in the US was increasingly feeling. That's Brent Cummings there talking. You've observed Brent over many years. You've observed him on the battlefield, now back home. Just tell us a bit more about Brent Cummings and why it's his story you chose to tell. What does he represent? I'm really, thank you for asking that, because I've known Brent since 2007 when um, he was part of a unit uh, in, in the U.S. Army unit that had been sent to Baghdad during the uh, the Iraq War. And I was there to write a book about what happened to that unit. Um, this was 2007. I happened to live in a room next to Brent, and over the course of a year, really, uh, while I was there, I got to know him pretty well. And I saw him making the most extraordinary decisions in the course of war, in the course of combat, the most humane and decent decisions, just little things that people might brush over that he took so seriously, whether it was, um, oh my gosh, Rand, it, it was the most absurd thing. The first time I saw Rent in action was when some soldiers were supposed to take over a factory in another part of Baghdad to live closer to the population they were trying to protect. And the factory was fine, except in the courtyard, there was a, a, a lid over something that was hidden, and they pried open the lid, and they looked inside, and inside was a bunch of uh, wastewater, sewage water, and floating in the water was uh, a, an Iraqi who had been killed. And uh, I mean, I won't bother to describe this. It, it, was, it was a rather gruesome sight. Mm. But Brent took it seriously, and he said, we have to find a way to get this this body out of there because he was certainly somebody's son and maybe somebody's husband and father. And it's the decent thing to do. And if we don't do this, who are we? It was such an interesting thing to hear in those circumstances. And I became ever more watchful of Brent during that, uh, that deployment, things he was doing. And at the end of it, he and I stayed in touch over the years. And when it was time for this book, when I wanted to write about a decent moral character who was, like I said, bewildered by what's going on. He was the obvious choice. So I, I basically attached myself to him in 2016, and I stuck around and watched him for four years, almost five years, as he tried to make sense of what was going on in this country. Can you give us a sense of that? Because as you say, this is how the book expands, really, focusing on on Brent and and how he develops, unravels, whatever word you describe during that time. What's troubling Brent in America today? It's anything and everything that's troubling so many people. It's this It's this daily, drip-by-drip drip corrosive effect on what life in this country can feel like. There were little things he was dealing with. Uh, he would, I mean, uh, the smallest example, but he just wanted to get a new oven for his house. And the oven he got was a little off and a little crooked. And he called somebody in to try to fix it and adjust it. And the person was so baffled, what do you care? And Brent said, well, I care 
And the guy looked at it and he finally said, I get it. You may sell this house someday and you may sell it to an Indian. And I'm not talking about a Native American. And Brent is thinking, what, what, what just happened? How in the world does fixing an oven turn into something so gross and so monumental? So there were little things like that. And there were so many bigger things. So to give you a deeper, more serious answer, um, Brent is a guy, he's probably more Republican than Democrat, more conservative than, than liberal. But he was offended by Donald Trump. And it wasn't because of Trump's policies as much as Trump's behaviors, his daily vulgarisms, his incessant lying. Brent was brought up by a father he revered. Uh, this father taught him that if you try to live a good life, if you try to be a decent person, then you have a chance. You have a chance at a good life for the rest of your life. And, and Brent believed this. And now his father is 62 years old and filled with cancer and trying to stay alive one more day by drinking a can of a nutrient drink called Ensure, choking that thing down to try to stay alive. And then he's dead. He's dead and he's 62 years old. And meanwhile, Donald Trump, who is 70, and as far as Brent is concerned, is doing everything wrong, has not failed. He's ascended to the, to the presidency of the United States. And, and, and Brent is thinking, what is the lesson here? What am I supposed to do with this, this information? How do I make sense of what's going on? So he's, as you say, he's clearly offended by Donald Trump, the the man, and then worried about Donald Trump, the president. American Dreamer, your book opens with the intense political atmosphere of the 2020 presidential election and, and voting day. But you had the idea of writing this book back in 2016. Did you have a sense back then of how polarised US politics and American society was going to become? I don't think anyone could have imagined it. The kind of, you know, the kind of reporting I do for my books that I did in The Good Soldiers, the book uh, you referenced earlier, uh, uh, the sequel, Thank You for Your Service, and now uh, An American Dreamer, it's a type of journalism where, where the story hasn't occurred yet. There's just an interesting moment and an interesting character. And as a journalist, you're curious. You want to see what happened. So I went to see Brent in 2016 thinking, there's something here. I didn't know what, but if I stay long enough, a story will emerge. And I had no idea at the beginning of all the little things and large things Brent would be encountering over the next four years. But by the end of the four years, yes, I knew then and he knew then, but I didn't know at the beginning. No. Gee, you've got fantastic instincts then. How do you gather or how did you gather and develop your story? And how, how long did you you know, did you spend there with Brent Cummings, his, his, his family, his neighbours? What was that process? Did you actually embed with them? Well, if you can embed in civilian life, I guess that's a good term for it. I live in Washington, D.C., but I spent the bulk of those four years uh, either in Georgia with Brent. There was a point in there where he, before he got out of the army, he spent a year over in Jerusalem on a deployment, and I went to Jerusalem and I was with him there watching what happened while, while he tried to navigate Israel and became friends on one hand with uh, a wonderful Israeli family. And on the other hand, with this wonderful woman who lived on the other side of the wall in, uh, uh, near Bethlehem and whose life, because of that wall and because of policies, was a daily disaster. 
And so here's Brent experiencing these two versions of life and learning more and more about his own by such experiences. At the end, the pandemic came and that got a little tough for reporting. I guess you can understand this mm-hmm. because if my, if my technique is to just go and hang out in the serendipity of a day to see what happens, suddenly there's this pandemic where reporting changed. For that year, uh, what I did is I rented a house on the street where Brent uh, lives. And uh, so at least I was in the vicinity for my reporting. It's this extraordinary commitment to to the story. I just want to stay a bit more, a bit longer with your with your process. I mean, you developed the trust and the friendship with Brent over the years. We can see that. But it's another thing to get access to what feels like, you know, an unfiltered access to their interior life, their thoughts and their responses. Are you just like literally sitting in a corner listening or what what are you doing? That's what we do, right? Um, I was fortunate in this case because I spent time with Brent in Iraq in, in, in very, very difficult circumstances. I mean, this was a, a, a tough deployment those guys went through. And, and I was there. I was present. I was often in the company of Brent when bad things were happening. And he saw how I behaved as a journalist. So uh, trust was built in, was baked in somewhat by the time I came to him with this new idea for a book. Nonetheless... You know, to, to, to go back to your earlier question, did I have any idea what, what things would, would corrode into at the beginning in 2016? No, and neither did Brent. And I have to say, as the years went on, I think it's fair to say that Brent became increasingly worried about what the blowback would be on him for being at the center of a book in such fractured times mm. when he was clear about his feelings about Donald Trump. Uh, all credit to him for sticking with it. He and his family could have backed out, but they decided, for whatever reasons, this story was important to add to the archives of the history of this moment, and and they stuck with it. Which is, as you say, a big commitment because you paint divided street, divided neighborhood, divided country. There's likely to be blowback for him, isn't there? Has there been already? Well, there hasn't been yet, and, and I'm hoping there won't be, but I can't make that promise to Brent or, or his wife, Laura. Or uh, I also write in a book about Brent's next door neighbor, uh, a guy named Michael and his wife, Anne. And, and they're both hardcore, hardcore Trump MAGA people, as, as hardcore as you can get. And they, for whatever reasons, were very open about their lives as well and their beliefs, but they have the same concerns. What will being in this book, uh, they're just, they're, they're you, they're me. Uh, they're not politicians. They're not famous people. And and what's going to happen to them for being so public about their feelings in, 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 in such a fraught time? You're listening to Saturday Extra. Frank Kelly here with you. And David Finkel is my guest. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author of a new book called An American Dreamer, Life in a Divided Country. You mentioned Michael there. What is striking about Michael and Brent is we've got two guys living on the same street in Georgia and they feel completely differently about Donald Trump. They have an over-the-fence conversation where, you know, Brent says of Trump, he lies, he lies to us every day. And then a few pages on, Michael's musing about Donald Trump. You won't like everything he says, but I haven't seen anything the man has said that was wrong. Everything that comes out of his mouth has been right. So totally opposite observations of the same man. What does right. that tell us about America right now? Well, it's it's how they 
get along with each other in spite of this. There might be a lesson in there. I, you know, they tried so hard not to talk about politics with each other. They're neighbors. They, they share a street together. Uh, but one time, as, as, as you mentioned, they did get into the conversation, and it was getting pretty heated. And at the end, they both peeled back before it crossed a line from which they, they wouldn't be able to recover. Mm. And they've gone on, and, and they continue to be good neighbors, and they don't talk about this. So, you know, I don't know what the lesson is there. Is it that we can get along through willful ignorance, or we can get along when we differ with each other? by not focusing everything on that difference, but trying to find some commonality. Um, in their case, that's what they're trying to do, and, and they do get along. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there is this, this central tension that's there that, that, that if they ever get in another political discussion, it's gonna come up again, because they, they exist in the same country, but it's two different countries. Uh, Michael, all of the information he gets, comes from sources that absolutely buttress his view of the world. And Brent reads widely. He, he looks at right-wing websites. He looks at left-wing websites. He, uh, he reads newspapers widely, mainstream and different ones. So he does have, a, a, I think, a larger view of the world than Michael does. But there's no penetrating Michael because, because when he says things to Michael about what he finds to be the truth of Trump, it's news to Michael because he's never heard this before. It doesn't exist in his version of America. And we don't exactly track this, but did you get the sense that Brent's view of Trump emerged? I mean, as you say, he's a veteran of the Iraq War, he's a son of the South, uh, he's a you know middle America white guy on paper. In fact, he says it's in the book, you know, probably more Republican than Democrat. You might be forgiven for assuming that he would be a Trump supporter. But assumptions about each side are perhaps part of the problem. And it turns out he's not a Trump supporter. We, I don't think we find out how he voted in 2016. But these days, when you're with him, he's working at the University of North Georgia, he's in charge of cadets, and he, he, he starts to see some things that really trouble him about, you know, tensions, for instance, over the Confederate flag. Right, he does. So, so whatever people might assume about Brent, because he was born in Mississippi. He has family that traces back to the Confederacy. He drives a pickup truck. He likes to shoot guns. All the things, all the tropes that make you think you know who Brent is. Mm. He's not that guy. Just like I saw him take on things in Iraq and act from a position of, of, of humanism and of decency, that's how he approaches so many things in, 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 in modern life as well. All the little things that come his way when there's a group that comes after him accusing him of, of being part of a group that is uh, cruel to Palestinians, he doesn't know what to do because among the group that's assaulting him, he's pretty sure he's the only one that has a dear friend who's Palestinian. He's pretty sure he's the only one who has been to Iftar dinners. He's, he's pretty sure he has knowledge other people don't have, but what can he do? Because if he answers them, the answer won't be believed because that's the point we've come to in so many ways at this time in America. What's fantastic as a, as a reader, I think, of this book is you, you follow Brent's life and you feel 
him changing. You feel the impact of the weaponized political debate in the United States. He says at one point, the angry man, that's who he could feel himself becoming on many days. And earlier in the book, he observes of himself, these are his days now, the days of a moral man in the midst of a moment that felt immoral to him. So the, the, the social divisions, the prejudice he's experiencing feel painful for him. It's almost like it's affecting his psyche and his character. Did you observe that that change? Very much so. I think there was an accumulation uh, that I saw over the four years I was following him for this book. At the beginning, it was more benign. Uh, like I said, it was bewilderment. But by the end, especially, you know, the, the book begins with that scene of him voting. It's, it's the smallest thing. But in a democracy, in some ways, it's the purest, most meaningful thing you can do. Mm. You vote. And then... He did vote. He walked out of the, the voting booth that day thinking he had done something meaningful. And then what happened next? There was just such an effort to discredit votes, to warp them, to undermine them, to bastardize them, that uh, the bewilderment that we saw at the beginning of 2016 by the end had changed into, into a visceral anger. David, what about you and how you might have changed through this experience? Have you? Do you think you've learned anything yourself about how to have conversations with people you disagree with or people who don't trust you, people like Michael perhaps, who believe that the mainstream media just lies? You know, Michael believes that strongly. And, and when I'm not writing books, I work at the Washington Post and, and, and Michael doesn't read that paper and has a deep distrust of it. Nonetheless, for whatever reasons, he welcomed me uh, into his life. We spent a lot of time together. I like all the people I write about, it's, <laughs> it's, and, and, and Michael included. And uh, he's a great guy to spend time with, and he's really thoughtful, trying to figure things out. And there are no villains in this book. Um, there are no heroes. There are no villains. Michael is one more representation of, 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 of what's going on in this country. There was, a, there was a time when I finished writing the book. Part of my process is... The people I'm writing about can't see the book until it's published. That's just a basic rule of journalism because then they become their own editor. They become their own censor in a way. Uh, at the same time, you don't want people to be surprised by what's in a book. So there's always a point when I present myself to the people I've written about and I go through the book with them so oh. they have a sense of what's coming. And at the end of doing this with Michael, he said, Look, David, I don't know what your politics are. I can make some assumptions about you. We've never really talked about you, and all the time we spent together, we've talked about me. But, but I think I know what your politics are. And I have to say, uh, I thought you were going to make fun of me, but you didn't do that. You listened to me, and I appreciate that. That was a good thing to hear, because I didn't want to make fun of him. He has a point of view shared by a lot of Americans, and as in all my work, I'm not there to judge people. I'm there to, 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 to I don't know, to, to be curious about them, to understand them. It's a and great, so, it's a great but, strength of your work, I think, your lack of judgment, your lack of villains. Um, in your earlier book, Thank You for Your Service, no. you wrote uh -huh. that every war has its after war, and you were talking about mentally wounded veterans there. But does this no. partisan political war, which is how Brent described it at the very start of the book, as you read, the racist divisions, the violence of the January 6th attacks on the Capitol, you know, inability to agree in Congress. Does it have an after war? 
Oh my gosh, friend, that's such a smart question. I don't know what happens next. I don't know where this leaves us. But the stakes are really high here. And and here we are again. Mm. It's the same two guys running against each other. And if the book does anything, it's a reminder of what we went through last time and what we're going to be going through again. Well, exactly right. I mean, as you say, here we are again, four years on again now, since you were observing. If you'd been observing a cast of characters up close and personal over the last four years, as you did in the four years before that, what changes do you think you might have documented? Would you be telling a different story or simply a story of life in an even more divided America of, of, of Brett Cummings, an even angrier man? I don't know, Fran. Would it be a version of the same story? Um, uh, you know, there's that old saw, no stories are new. They're just new ways of telling them. Where we are now reminds me so much of not where we were in 2016, but where we were uh, in early 2021, when uh, we felt like maybe things were momentarily settled, but we're about to tip into something a little bit worse. That's that's the feeling. I just don't know what's coming. Neither does Brent. Neither does Michael. None of us does. It's but 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 I think we're all clear that there has been quite a corrosive effect on democracy, and I mean the the integrity of voting. A vote now. In this country, that's one difference between now and 2016 and maybe 2020, a vote used to be something to believe in, and now it's something to be doubted. That has, I think, uh, awfully grave consequences. David Finkel, it's great to talk to you again, and congratulations on American Dreamer. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Fran. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.